This episode is brought to you with support from Ravensburger. Did you know that Ravensburger produces more than just the classic jigsaw puzzles and board games we know so well? Introducing CreeArt by Ravensburger, the ultimate painting by number experience. You'll find everything you need to start your artistic journey today with Ravensburger's carefully curated painting by number kits. Whether you're a seasoned artist seeking a new challenge or a beginner eager to explore the world of painting, Ravensburger's kits cater to all skill levels and ages. Embrace the therapeutic benefits of painting by number as you melt away the stresses of daily life and find solace in the act of creation without facing the pressure of a blank canvas. Easily explore Ravensburger's wide selection of enchanting designs on Amazon, ranging from majestic landscapes to adorable animals and everything in between. Let your imagination run wild and embrace the joy of painting with CreeArt by Ravensburger. Shop CreeArt on Amazon today. This next thing is not an ad. It's more of a conversation starter. I'm thinking a lot about climate change lately. I mean, I think most of us are. And what I can do besides drive less, get solar panels, eat sustainably. It's a huge issue and it's hard to know where to focus. So I thought maybe one thing I could do is talk about some issues and organizations here that I think are doing good work. For example, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Their mission is to interpret and conserve the Earth's biological diversity through research, education, and citizen science focused on birds and nature. According to the Cornell Lab, in North America alone, we've lost nearly 3 billion birds since 1970. Some of that loss is due to climate change and habitat loss, but they also have a list of seven simple ways for individuals to help birds, including keeping domestic cats indoors, planting native species instead of lawns, and using less plastic. Find out more information about the Cornell Lab and things you can do to protect birds at birds.cornell.edu. That's birds.cornell.edu. Mount Shasta, located in Northern California, close to the Oregon border, is beloved by many for a number of reasons. Native American tribes in the area view it as the sacred center of the universe and believe it's the home of the creator. The Wintu tribe trace their origin back to a sacred spring on the mountain. Others see Mount Shasta as an energy vortex and go there for vision quests and meditation retreats. And still others see the 14,000-foot mountain with its snow-covered glaciers and volcanic cones and are inspired to ascend to its summit. My name is Adam Danielson. Uh, I live in Grafton, Wisconsin. I'm 51 years old. I'm a sales manager for a national company. Mount Shasta, it's an active volcano, 14,160 feet approximately. It's in the Cascade Mountain Range. One thing that is a little deceiving is that what looks like the summit of the mountain is actually the summit plateau, the rim. There's quite a traverse on the summit plateau before you actually get to and see the true summit. The U.S. Forest Service has a four-page guide entitled, So You Want to Climb Mount Shasta. The first paragraph with the heading, Climbing Mount Shasta is a Very Special Experience, 
cites the climb as, quote, a unique opportunity to experience the mountain's wilderness, going on to define wilderness as having, quote, outstanding opportunities for solitude, or a primitive and unconfined type of recreation. That's the kind of thing that really appeals to Adam. My entire life, I spent outdoors back in the 90s. I was big into, you know, rock climbing here in Wisconsin. We have a place called Devil's Lake. Uh, spent a lot of time there. That was the beginning of climbing with my brother as well. It's said that over 15,000 people attempt to reach Mount Shasta Summit each year, with only a third achieving success. My brother and I, we did attempt Mount Shasta last year. And we had turned back you know, to approximately 13,300, 400 feet. And due to weather, pulled the plug on that trip and realized that the best thing to do was to descend. This past May, Adam went back to climb Mount Shasta with his brother and two friends. This year was a little bit different in many ways, I guess. Not really a little bit. It was a lot bit different in many ways. The Forest Service pamphlet I mentioned earlier says that each climbing route on Mount Shasta has a particular season when conditions are optimal. For the most popular non-technical route, Avalanche Gulch, mid-May to mid-July is ideal. There should be good snow coverage then, as opposed to later in the summer, when climbers have to deal with loose, unstable scree and rockfall hazards. This also means you have the option of using skis or snowshoes for the climb. Adam and his party decided to go in early May. May is a popular time to climb Mount Shasta because it's a volcano that with snowpack, it's safer for the climb. Uh, you do have the versatility, as much of my party did, of with skis skinning up the mountain or snowshoeing up the mountain. And also, you have less opportunity to run into parts of the route that would otherwise be inaccessible. Like with Bergshren, which is where the glacier or the snowpack will actually separate, very similar to a glacial crevasse. And sometimes that can create where your routes will be cut off. Adam and the others were excited. The conditions for the climb seemed good. The past winter had produced a lot of snow. Made for great climbing and made for a lot of snow on the mountain. Adam's done marathons and triathlons in the past, so he was accustomed to the endurance training needed for this kind of endeavor. He added in a backpack to his training regimen and started getting ready five or six months in advance. The day of the climb, May 4th, Adam and his party followed the guidance from the Forest Service that while it was possible to climb to the summit in one day, you increase your chance of success if you do it in two days. They hiked from the trailhead at Bunny Flats up to Helen Lake and set up camp, planning to get up before dawn the next day and start the trek to the summit in the dark. Helen Lake is about 10,400 feet and would camp on the mountain and then leave before sunrise, commonly called an alpine start. It's not uncommon for people to start, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we did start later than that. But the way a normal route would look is that you would get up, leave in the pre-dawn, would summit, and would be back to camp. And typically, people break down and would then continue to descend back to the base of the mountain. So, depending upon how smooth the ascent was, we would expect to get back to camp around anywhere from noon to 2 the conditions on the first day were ideal, clear and beautiful. The next morning at Helen Lake, it was dark when they woke, but the stars weren't visible. The conditions were clear but cloudy, which, while not terribly ideal, still something that at that time didn't seem alarming. 
you know, getting up before sunrise in the dark, comparatively at elevation, it, it was cold on the mountain. I would say it was in the 30s. A very cool aspect of it is that when you begin your climb, you're beginning by headlamp because it's pre-dawn. So you are experiencing the mountain in your head and in the darkness, only guided by your route, um, your navigation, and that cone of light, which is, to a degree, your only world other than the darkness. Navigation typically comes down a lot of GPS, uh, both between apps or altimeter watch. The other three guys in Adam's group were experienced backcountry skiers, which is a very efficient way of ascending and descending the mountain. But coming from Wisconsin, I don't ski. I don't have the equipment. And while we had the conversation, there is a skill to it. And without spending a lot more time in the mountains training with the skis, it made more sense for me to ascend with snowshoes, which I'm very accustomed snowshoeing in Wisconsin. So that was the plan. Adam would use snowshoes, and the other three would be on skis. On the descent, he would follow their tracks, since they'd be going faster. The ascent, quite honestly, was, I would say, uneventful. There were points where Cloudbank would come through, there'd be some snow, and within 15 minutes that would blow out again. And when we reached the summit plateau, it was bluebird sky at that point. While it was blue sky above, um, looking down, you were actually looking at the top of other clouds. It was like looking down onto a bed of cotton. Adam stood looking out at the majestic view, enjoying the satisfaction of having finally achieved their goal. Standing at the summit had a tremendous amount of accomplishment on seeing that through uh, the amount of training that one puts in in the skills and the endurance and especially after turning back and making the decision that the safest thing to do was to turn around the previous year to finally stand on the summit really was very much rewarding it was also beautiful in the standpoint that that's not an environment that a lot of people get to share so it was very much something that was special to me on a number of levels Since they hadn't gotten as early a start as they'd hoped, they didn't stay long up at the summit. Coming from the summit, it was about 2.30, which was later than we not only should have been, but that we would have liked. Because the mountain changes throughout the day, and especially on a south face of a mountain, is that as the sun hits the snow, uh, the UV rays uh, affect the snow melt, uh, the snow conditions change, it can become sloppy. Uh, at later parts of the afternoon, so it's best to be on your descent or descended before the point in the afternoon when conditions usually will degrade. So around 2.30, the rest of Adam's group decided they wanted to get going. The plan was to descend a couple of hundred feet on foot to Red Banks, and then they would ski back to camp. Looking back, Adam isn't totally sure what went into his decision not to leave with them right then. Truthfully, I really don't know. But I already at that point knew that I was going to be arriving back at camp considerably later than the rest of my climbing group, that we were going to be separating because I was not skiing down. But uh, there's a degree of, of shame that I own because when you make decisions on the mountain, um, 
at the end of the day, you are responsible for yourself. And by not descending with them, I made that decision. And to this day, I own that. So I'd taken a couple of pictures and was having something to eat. And I'm like, I'll follow your tracks and we'll go from there. Adam estimates that he descended about 20 minutes after the rest of his group. And that was when the wind started picking up. And to this day, I, I, I kick myself on how you can look off and enjoy looking at a summit and looking at the clouds below you. And at the same time, not pay due attention to the entire picture, if you will. You know, coming off of the Pacific Ocean doesn't take a tremendous amount for a storm to approach you, to get to you, and the winds picked up tremendously, as did the snow. The temperature was dropping quickly. Adam lost still more time as he took off his pack to get out some additional layers of clothing. I had probably reached of what's called the summit spire, and at that point, the winds and the snow had picked up as if someone had flipped a switch. And it was whiteout conditions from that point as I was now descending what would be called Misery Hill. And when I say whiteout conditions, you can't see more than three, four feet in front of you. You know, being on the summit, it literally was absolutely beautiful right up until it wasn't. As the conditions changed and violently, it went from awesome to scary, seemingly in a moment. It went from blue skies to the inside of a ping pong ball. That's what being inside of a whiteout is. Everything has the same matte level of light gray, up, down, left, right. It throws your orientation off. So the plan was that that I I was going to follow their tracks down, which made perfect sense under any other circumstances on its surface. But at the same time, um, having GPS and having the mapping. But when the whiteout conditions occurred and the wind had picked up, and when I say picked up, the winds were phenomenal. Being on the top of a mountain, there's nothing stopping the winds. And as I was descending, the tracks were blowing over and infilling, and I no longer had the benefit of following those tracks out. That was scary in itself. I mean, one wouldn't think that in a short period of time that the tracks of four people coming up and the tracks of three coming down, that you could lose that track. It was shocking how quickly that trail disappeared. Adam was rattled, but not overly concerned at that point. He still had his phone, so he pulled it out to check the compass. And north would be in one direction, and a moment later north was in an entirely different direction, perpendicular to that. Worse still, the GPS was malfunctioning. It had my location where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wasn't and the mapping location was intermittently placing me in different spots on the mountain. It was at that point that it was terrifying because there's a very helpless feeling when 
you don't have visibility. You don't have location awareness with a high degree of accuracy. And the means to get out of that is now unreliable. And that's where panic can very easily set in. Adding to that is that I knew that coming down the ridge at Red Banks, you follow along the arc where the Kwankatan Glacier is, and that would be on my left-hand side. And that's about a 70-foot drop. And in whiteout conditions, I did not want to walk off the face of that. Adam continued down very slowly, looking to see if he could pick up his party's tracks, checking his mapping, and trying to stay vigilant to every aspect of the environment. He'd studied the topographical maps in preparation for the climb, so he was continually looking for landmarks that would help him find his bearings. He was also gauging the terrain against his memory of the ascent only a couple of hours earlier. Through the blowing snow, he saw a familiar formation that he identified as Thumb Rock on the south side of the mountain and proceeded downward. But in actuality, I hadn't descended far enough and was making a decision on a similar rock that was farther up. So I had dropped down and descended off the ridge, but it wasn't long after, I'd say I was maybe 200 meters down the ridge and realized that the snow was much deeper, the grade was very different, was more steep, and I, I knew that I was not where I thought I was, and I knew that I was not where I should be. At that point now, it's, it's later that I should be here, and I started attempting to text and attempting to get bearings, you know, continually through the GPS with no success. As troubling as it was for Adam to realize that he was not where he thought he was, the dawning knowledge of his true location was even more disturbing. As I descended a bit farther and I began making out as the snow subsided a little bit, I started making out the glacier. And it was at that point that I knew for sure that I was on the north face. And that was a terrifying realization because I was on the opposite side of the mountain and alone. So instead of dropping into the ridge that would have taken him back down the south side of the mountain to Avalanche Gulch, Adam was lost and alone on the north side of Mount Shasta. It's very easy to go into panic mode in those kind of situations, and it, and it was challenging to maintain composure. and the conditions had not improved other than moments and then would pick back up. And it was at that point that I had tried calling 911 for rescue myself. And the first time that I had called, the call wouldn't connect. That was where you have a real realization of exactly how alone you are at that point in time. I tried a second time and that call as well would not go through. I texted my brother and it said, hey, I'm lost. Honestly, I'm scared. If you get this text, please call 911. And I had sent the text, had put my phone back in the pocket on my jacket. And it was a bit later that I heard a ping. 
thinking that he got it and he was acknowledging it and, you know, there was some sort of communication, only to pull my phone out and to see on my iPhone the red exclamation point with the circle around it that even the text had not gone through. It only added to that isolation feeling and that feeling that I was very alone. I couldn't contact anyone and we were now moving in the evening and I was on the wrong side of the mountain. It was now getting dark and I was under headlamp. So I had found a drift that was alongside the glacier that I was descending along and made the decision that I was going to take my avalanche shovel, clip that together, and begin to dig a snow cave, knowing that I was going to spend the night on the mountain. I was probably about halfway through what I had planned for a sufficient snow cave that I could find some level of protection, and my phone rang, which honestly startled me. You know, I hear I've been trying to reach out unsuccessfully and someone was reaching in and I was scrambling to pull my phone out of my jacket pocket and answered. It was the Siskiyou County Sheriff's deputy. He told Adam that he'd spoken with his brother and he wanted to begin planning for Adam's rescue. I was overjoyed to hear another person's voice. The deputy asked Adam about his current condition and had him go over his inventory. Did I have food? Did I have additional layers? What was my water situation? How was the battery on my phone? And we were talking on the call, and then we were disconnected. At this point, it's driving snow. Um, I'm halfway standing in a hole that I had dug in the side of a snow drift and now lost call. But I at least had some level of assurance that someone at least knew I was on the mountain. Adam promptly received a text from the deputy, and they agreed that they'd attempt to stay in touch that way. So now, not only was it known that Adam was on the mountain, before the call dropped, the deputy had told Adam that he'd already been in contact with the U.S. Forest Service climbing rangers, and that they were mobilizing for his rescue. That was the good news. Uh, He did share with me at that point that given the conditions, an evacuation by helicopter was not part of the equation. That meant that a rescue would not be able to happen until the next morning. It wasn't more than a few moments after that, and my phone rang again. Again, surprised, going, well, now I'm receiving intermittent phone calls. And this time it was the lead of the U.S. Forest Service climbing rangers, Nick Myers. He introduced himself. I came to find out. He was the lead for the rescue operation for me. Uh, He shared very similar information that given the conditions that I was spending the night on the mountain. Nick Myers went over some of the same details the deputy had, making sure that Adam had enough warm clothes, food, and water. In the middle of their conversation, that call dropped. He reached out by text to find out if Adam had a means for shelter. I explained that I had begun digging a snow cave to shelter myself through the night. Uh, He had asked about conditions. Was it just snow or was it snow and rain? He was tremendously helpful. I had asked him at one point what he would do, and he 
he shared with me, do anything you can to stay warm. You know, I would keep moving. With that, I made the decision that if I'm going to keep moving, which made absolute perfect sense, I may as well be descending. You know, being at lower elevation uh, subsequently would be warmer and I need to go down to go home. Adam knew he was in a perilous situation, but at least now he had a plan. At this point, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was on the Whitney Glacier, and I did not want to be. I knew that I was on the glacier, or at least, you know, on the edge of it, but I did not realize how on the glacier I was until that descent. Descending a mountain in a snowstorm is challenging. Descending a glacier is another thing entirely. A glacier is a really slow-moving ice river, if you will. Glaciers, they consistently change, they move, um, they're impacted by the weight of snow, they're impacted by their own weight, by thaw and freeze conditions, um, and gravity. They will heave and pieces will break off or calve. Uh, they'll separate, creating crevasses. So being, being on the glacier is definitely not a place that one would recommend and you'd want to be alone. Being on a glacier is definitely not a place that you want to be at night. So I made the decision that, that if I'm going to keep moving to stay warm, that I, I'll be descending. So I descended and within 50 feet of me leaving this snow cave, as I'm stepping through with the wind and the snow, one foot made a step. As I made the next step down, I stepped into nothing and fell forward. And as I was falling forward, the snow underneath me fell away into almost a funnel going away from me. And I found myself hanging with my left foot toe pick on the front of my crampons on one side of a crevasse and my forearms on the other. That was an absolutely terrifying realization of the situation that I had gotten myself into. Adam had his ice axe in his left hand and his trekking poles in his right. Both were dug into the snow in front of him. My feet were on the uphill side of the crevasse, and my forearms were on the downhill side of the crevasse. And by headlamp, I was looking down into a crack that the light of my headlamp would not see the bottom of. What I could see, um, when I looked down into the crevasse, it, it was beautiful and horrifying simultaneously. I, I could see uh, icicles hanging from the edges on either side of where the ice had separated and blue ice below it. But what was most striking was that I could not see the bottom and there was nothing but what seemed like never-ending blackness. My, my main concern was getting onto solid ice. I was fortunate enough to see how I could move to my left to be able to get back to snow, um, at least enough to my hopes that I would be able to get to the downhill side 
of that which I did successfully. I had pulled myself together, had stood up, and went not more than 20 feet farther, and the same thing happened the second time. This crevasse was larger, and Adam had even more of a challenge pushing himself up onto a snowdrift and away from immediate danger. And I broke down. And I had the terrifying realization that as bad as I thought of the situation I was previously in, it, it had gotten worse, and I could not be in any worse situation. And it, it took me a few minutes to pull myself together. It took every ounce of Adam's courage and determination to not spiral into a paralyzing panic. I was at really at a, a psychological fork in the road because either there is no way that I'm going to survive this night or there is no way that I'm not. I elected psychologically and within myself that there was no way after this that I was not getting off this mountain. And honestly, you know, I had said audibly out loud to myself, you don't have time for this. Pull yourself together. You have to get home. You're going to get home. And it was at that point as I came to my feet, all of my conversation was now forward-facing, that it was now a foregone conclusion. My goal was to get home to my wife, to my family, to the rest of my climbing party, that anything other than that was not an option. Even though Adam had a half-completed snow cave 70 or 80 feet up the mountain that would have provided some warmth and protection for the long, cold night ahead, he couldn't imagine making his way back up to it. Because in order to do that, it would have entailed what I can only imagine would be jumping. I honestly haven't given it a tremendous amount of thought because there was, there was no way I was even attempting going back to my snow cave. At this point, it's now midnight. I was terrified. So I made the decision that I was going nowhere until morning. Adam had been sending Nick texts, the hope of connection like the most tenuous thread in his solitude, he told him about the crevasses and that he was not moving from his current location. A ping sounded in the darkness, a succinct message from Nick. That uh, this will probably be the hardest night of your life. You can do this. We will come for you in the morning. Adam saw a nearby carved off piece of the glacier that was large enough to give some protection from the wind and blowing snow. Using his trekking pole, he jabbed at every square inch of ground before stepping toward it. He huddled behind the barrier and dug down as far as he could until reaching ice. He put on every layer of clothing he had, placed his pack as insulation between him and the glacier, and sat down. And settled in for what I knew was going to be the loneliest and coldest night of my life. And it was exactly that. It lived up to every expectation. Stranded on the glacier and utterly alone, 
Adam crouched against the slab of ice and shivered uncontrollably. Terrified but exhausted, he would nod off momentarily. And more often than not, would shiver myself awake or would be awakened by the winds that were just whipping down the mountain. It sounded like a freight train. And the amount of pressure as that wind came down the glacier was amazing. And it was cold. I've never been so cold in my life. Sitting on his pack, Adam would wave his arms back and forth and flex his hands to keep blood to his fingertips. He'd lift his legs and flex his toes, anything to try to keep warm and keep moving, like Nick had advised. He tried not to think about what would happen if he stopped. The tiny beam of his headlamp was the only thing that grounded him in the darkness. Hours passed like this, as all he could do was wait for morning and hope for rescue. In those desperately lonely hours, Adam thought often about calling his wife, but realized he'd be waking her from sleep and passing his burden on to her with no way for her to help. He turned his mind to meditation, a practice he'd done daily at home. I began to meditate more so to stave off freaking out and to maintain control and to maintain some focus. There was a very long time controlling my breathing, and I have a mantra that I repeated much of that night of peace within me, peace all around me. Peace within me, peace all around me. And to a degree, one could very easily laugh because there was anything but peace of the situation that I was in within me or around me. But I'm a strong believer of mind over matter, and the Earl Nightingale quote of what the mind can perceive, the body can achieve. And so the night went, with the wind howling and snow blowing. Adam would nod off from exhaustion and then wake after a few minutes to repeat the whole process of moving his body to try to stay warm. And that went on until you started to notice that we were getting closer to dawn. It was becoming more of a gray and was no longer that black, black, black of night. So at that point, it was about 4.30 in the morning, and Nick Myers had texted me. But it was one of those points that I had nodded off and didn't hear the text. And he had sent the second text, Adam, you there? Nick had later shared with me that when I didn't respond, he said, oh boy, here we go, body recovery. I'm glad I didn't know that part at the time. But the second notification, I had heard that, and I responded, yes, I'm here. And he said, that's great. You know, how are you? I explained, I I believe my exact quote back to him is, I'm ready to go home. Nick texted that the weather conditions were still too bad for a helicopter rescue. But he also wrote the words that Adam had been hoping for all night. We are coming for you. It's amazing how one can read something and the physical change that information can have on your body. Because while I was still shivering, having that acknowledgement that someone was there, someone knew I was here, and that they were coming, warmed me in in a physical sense. He said, well, I'll get more details. We're going to be mobilizing, and I will be in contact with you as we're progressing. Just moments later, Adam's phone rang again. 
a sound that he no longer took for granted as a normal, everyday occurrence. And I saw that it was my brother, and I, I had answered, good morning, or something like that. And he just paused for a moment, and he said, I gotta take a sec. <laughs> he, uh, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> he was a little bit choked up, and he said, dude, I cannot tell you how good it is to hear your voice. And we spoke for a spell. I said, I can't stay on the phone long, but they're doing the the rescue later this morning. Adam's brother had stayed on the mountain in a tent where they'd all camped before ascending to the summit. The rest of the climbing party had continued down to the car at the trailhead. So someone would be there on the off chance that Adam was able to descend to that point. Now, Adam continued to try to stay warm as the landscape lightened around him. I can truly say I've never been so happy to see nighttime slowly fade away as I was on the morning of the 6th. Over the next hours, rescue workers made their way up toward one of the most remote and dangerous spots on Mount Shasta. Before they reached him, though, Adam put on his snowshoes and began to descend toward them. He was suddenly gripped with the fear that his grave mistake could endanger the men coming to save him while he'd been paralyzed by the thought of encountering another crevasse. What if there is yet another crevasse? And one of these four men who were only there to save me were to fall into it. And with that thought, Adam headed down the ridge, cautiously probing the ground before every step. I had descended somewhere, we figured, between 1,000 to 1,200 feet, and... Just as they round this ridge down the valley, I could see them. And once we were in sight, you know, I descended down, walked to them, and they're, hey, Adam, how are you? How you doing? Great to see you moving. It would be six more miles of hiking down to the snowmobiles, and then a mile and a half to a waiting snowcat. But having these four men standing with me and to have someone to talk to even though I knew we had a long way to go until we were off this mountain. I wasn't alone. We often hear that people come away changed after having encountered serious, life-threatening situations. Adam discovered a profound sense of his own resilience. At the end of the day, when you go into the mountains, you are responsible for yourself. You are responsible for your decisions. You have to remember core fundamentals of mountain safety, that you have reliable navigation tools and know how to use them, that you stay with your climbing party or don't climb alone. And I was responsible for my decision and separating from the group. That's on me. I made mistakes. I live with that. Fortunately, I live with that. But the fact remains, it was my decision and no one else's. And I want to be very clear that if it were not for my brother reaching out, that if it were not for the Siskiyou County Sheriff Deputy contacting me and getting my coordinates and passing that along, and if it were not for the U.S. Forest Service climbing rangers, it, it could have been a very different story. And it had a happy ending. And while some may find it incredibly hard to get their head wrapped around, 
at the end of it, that night changed my life in good ways. I will forever be a devotee to meditation. Meditation has made a tremendous amount of positive impact in my life over the last few years. But through the course of that night, having that as a means of grounding myself under incredibly extenuating circumstances, when all hell is breaking loose and your world is sort of falling apart around you, it reassured me that you can get through about anything. And this experience changed me by giving me a different perspective on others, on the beautiful yet raw power of nature, but also on what you can do if you remain calm and put your mind to it. It may not be easy, but it is as simple as Nick Myers had shared with me in that text on that night. You can do this. This may be the hardest night, this may be the hardest situation, what have you. You can do this. That probably was one of the biggest learnings. And I have a level of gratitude in my life that I didn't previously have. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show on Patreon and PayPal. Find out how you can help at nocturnepodcast.org support. Nocturne is a proud member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a group of smart, well-crafted, independent podcasts, including The Lonely Palette, Soonish, Open Source, and Rumble Strip. Check out all the shows in Hub and Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. Till next time, thanks for listening.